0: Hey there, I'm Pete Townsend and this is Money Never Sleeps. We look inside the minds of entrepreneurs and at the crossover of startups, enterprise, finance, technology, and life as we know it. In this episode, I'm joined by guest co-host Paul Smith. Paul is a specialist executive recruiter and executive coach within the fintech industry. And as a founder of two startups, he's got a unique view on the startup ecosystem himself. Paul and I met back in 2017, shortly before I photobombed his stand at a fintech event in Dublin. We've collaborated quite a bit since then. He and his business partner and life partner, Laura Smith, from Top Tier Recruitment, were the original sponsors of Money Never Sleeps back in 2018. And since then, Paul has also launched a coaching business called Possible, and they count me as one of their proud customers. I was so happy with the outcome of Paul's coaching and me, that I asked him to coach the founders that we bring through the Techstars Web3 Accelerator. As one of the many hats he wears, Paul is a fantastic coach-in-residence for Techstars, helping startup founders find their way to positive outcomes. In this Money Talk segment, Paul and I kick things off with a look at the recent State of European Tech 2023 report produced by Atomico, the non-traditional European venture capital firm. We then get into some of the key issues at play with the proposed digital euro and how central bank digital currency, or CBDC, adoption may be impacted by the context of privacy in personal financial transactions. This leads us to a rundown on SockGen's new stablecoin listed on the Bitstamp Exchange. And we finish with a big question on what matters more in startup success, great founders or great markets? All right here on Money Never Sleeps. Paul Smith, how are you? Hey, Peace. I'm Grace. And yourself? I'm good. I'm good. I'm, I'm actually, as I mentioned a few minutes ago, I'm a little bit under the weather today, but you know, I haven't had anything like this in a year. So it's, it's man flu. It's fine. I'll get over it. Yeah.
1: I had a month in Spain, so I really can't complain. My vitamin D levels are through the roof. Yes, I can tell. Uh, Pretty happy with life. You're,
0: you're you're looking quite healthy there, young man.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Thank you. But everyone's saying, you know, you must say coming back to the weather, whether I actually love this, this weather in Ireland, because like we're getting the house done. So we'll have nice triple glazed windows very shortly, hopefully, and we can Turn on the heat and settle in, and those kind of crisp evenings and mornings, I just love it. I absolutely yeah, love it. Honestly, I know. I'm weird. I,
0: I was out bringing the kids to school this morning, and the the the, the crispness in the air just feels yeah. a bit like
1: it's going to start snowing or it's, something. And it, it's just, it's like clean, and you can see further or something. I don't know what it is, but then Laura calls me Dorothy. You know, no place like home. <laughs> we got to get you some. <laughs> Some
0: <laughs> shiny red, red slippers, red slippers. <laughs>
1: Only Only at the weekends, please.
0: <laughs> oh, I love it. I love it. I love it. You know, well, it, there's something to come back to there, and I will come back to you on that. So one of the things that is creating some warmth out there in the world right now is a bit of an upswing in Bitcoin over the last couple of days. Yes. I think it's up 16% yeah. over the last, I, I think this week, 15, 16% over the last week. And yes, FOMO, this is not investment advice. FOMO is kicking in and you got to pile in a bit more. Obviously you wish you piled in a bit more down at 20K, you know, but it is what it is. And, you know, there is a, there's so many projections out there for where this will go next year. And my, the, 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 theory that I'm poking around with, and I'm sure there are plenty others out there as well. So, 2017, we were hitting 20K, and the floor of this bear market was around that point, okay? Obviously, the ceiling of the bull market that followed the bear market of 2019, 2020, eventually, obviously, in 2021, we hit 69,000. So will that be the floor of the bear market that will follow the bull market that we're about to go on? And the dates we're looking at here is that 2024, 2025, perhaps being a bull market, that if the floor of the following bear market in 2026, 2027, is expected to be the ceiling of the bull market, two bull markets back, then the floor will be
1: 70k. Okay. So you're saying saying pile money into Bitcoin right now? But it's, it's, but not it's not investment, investment advice.
0: Device. So the floor would be 70, sorry, the floor of the following bear market in 2026, 27 will be 70 K. So what does that mean for what the ceiling of this bull market will be? It's mm. gotta be at least a hundred K. I think seems that's a conservative
1: estimate. Yeah, I'm talking myself into it. Again, this is not investment advice. Uh, it's, but it seems different this time. Like I think sometimes with, crypto there's a bit of confirmation bias and people are looking for signs that it's going somewhere north of wherever it is and i think that's true in any market we've ever seen but i think and we'll probably cover some of this a little bit i suppose but the more institutional interest and activity that happens in that market i think the more stability will come into that market as well Yep. and the more solidity and the the less volatility will be there kind of always said that yeah and i guess you know regulation and everything else and the advancements and that but it'll be interesting to see what happens over the next one yeah
0: institutional interest is at an all-time high it feels like right
1: mm-hmm. now and just yeah. with the
0: stuff that i'm reading every day and seeing more and more institutions it feels like 2019 sorry 2017 all over again mm-hmm. definitely 2017 all over again and yeah. then we had the same thing happen in 2020 2021 Mm. and more and more institutions came in and it's just that yeah with a bear market it's more you know a, a number pull out and all those projects get canceled but then with the next bull market they start to come back in so yeah but i i, I you know i think zo- you know zooming out a bit that it is still a difficult market it's still a difficult market for for venture investment and we had atomico's state of european tech 2023 report come out just in the last week or so, and that where the headline was out of CNBC that European tech funding halves to $45 billion back to pre-COVID levels, but AI is a bright spot. Duh, right? <laughs> we're we're seeing, seeing tons of that. The way the numbers were is that total venture funding for European tech companies will reach $45 billion this year, Atomico expects, and that's down from $82 billion in 2022, which is itself down from $100 billion the previous year. And if that was 2021, I mean, that's when things were just going a bit crazy. You had all of these bigger later stage venture funds that were coming back upstream to seed stage and they were just writing huge, huge checks. So I think all of that was obviously over inflated, but some encouraging signs there that, you know, although it's been a difficult market that we still have a decent level of investment. So mm. climate tech stood out, and also AI. I mean, there were just—I think it was eleven mega rounds in AI.
1: Yeah, it was eleven of thirty-six.
0: Yeah, over 100
1: million hundred. Mm. Yeah, and there was a couple of big ones in there as well, wasn't there? Mistral and uh, Alpha, Alpha. Yeah, Alef Alpha. Uh, they raised the them. Uh,
0: So so much money is piling
1: into the space right now. Mm wasn't there something this morning about Elon Musk's AI looking to raise about a billion as well? I think that was announced this morning, but it's, I don't know, like, clearly there's something in AI. I, I just wonder, is there a little bit of a bubble around it? Um, because there's so much hype, and so much interest.
0: Well, there is. And, you know, even, I mean, it's, the, now this is the Atomico report going back and looking at 2023, right? <laughs> so, fine. And, but we saw this happen just earlier this year. It's only been this year since, okay, ChatGPT really entered into the lexicon yeah. of just everyday internet users and people started yeah. to see this. And that the whole VC mentality of, hey, we need to be investing in things that, see a decent uplift in valuation from seed Series A, Series A to Series B and beyond, because that's how their returns work. And so if everybody's piling money in, valuations will go up and boom, you have a bit of a bubble. But as early as, you know, probably three months ago, kind of the joke going around was that, not even joke, but serious rhetoric of the VCs realized that Big tech already have AI figured out, Microsoft with open AI, and we won't even get into that, that Amazon are doing something big. I think it's called Olympus. Twitter, X, as you mentioned, Elon Musk with their project. And there's a number of others for big techs. And that why should we be pouring a huge amount of funding into these smaller players that don't have the resources to compete with the likes of open AI and others. And that, okay, let's move on. And so the VCs moved on and there was a superconductor wave for a little while that lasted a couple of weeks. <laughs> and then it's back to, okay, let's just cool the heads a bit and, you know, come back to making some decent investments again.
1: Yeah. There, there was a couple of other pieces in that, that caught my eye. When was that? A, even though it's halved, which is a, big headline is still 18% higher than pre-COVID levels and other other regions are tending to be lower. One other thing I picked out was the growth stage funding has dropped significantly from US investors from 25% to 25% from 39%. And I think for me, it's like, what does growth actually mean now? I think growth before was funding loss making ventures because they're adding new clients and getting numbers up all the time in the hope that eventually they turn positive from a revenue perspective. But I I think COVID and, and everything that happened in the aftermath of that has redefined potentially what growth means and there's probably an awful lot more scrutiny happening in terms of how do we actually make money, how do we p- make profit out of this business that we're we're funding. So that that was an interesting one. Mm. Um, and I think it's seen as well in valuations were lower, but the trend was more towards early stage where valuations are much more resilient. And there was a couple pointed out valuations nearly halving in latter stages in terms of fundraising grants, which is, is interesting as well. So it seems to be uh investors are more comfortable making smaller bets on earlier stage companies rather than making larger bets on more mature companies that may or may not actually make it when it comes to it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I I, you know, there is a natural and I've seen this, you see more risk aversion in European VCs than you do in the US. Mm. Yeah. And so there there's that general perception and that I hear this and, you know, I, I don't mean to label all of my VC friends in London with tar them with the same brush, but the general rhetoric around London-based VCs is that they're closer to private equity, which is mm-hmm. write bigger checks, take risks at a later stage. And that is, that is kind of common a commonplace perception. But I think that there's tons of innovation going on in Europe. And I think it is part of the just natural, good fragmentation of Europe in that you've got all of these, yes, it is a 500 million strong person economy, but you've got Germany, you've got France, you've got Spain, you've got Italy, you've got Switzerland, you've got Austria, you've got Ireland, obviously Greece, but leaving anybody out, I don't think we need to name them all. People can look at a map, right? Mm. And, but each of these have universities each of these have mm-hmm. a cultural shift of intelligence going into these university R&D type hot pots of activity with some wicked smart people, right? And it can be very fragmented mm-hmm. in that instead of having everybody like in the US, well, everyone goes to Stanford or everyone goes to MIT or everyone goes to Northwestern or yep. that you've and and everybody going through the same culture and the same way of learning and the same way of of then moving forward with trying to get things funded. That you've got mm. all these different ways of doing it across Europe and so that naturally leads to a VC environment or venture investment environment that is a bit fragmented as well.
1: Yeah. But yeah and it's it's different even from a product perspective like it's harder to launch in multiple jurisdictions in Europe mm. I feel like even just language difficulties and cultural difficulties than it is to launch something that's you know just US US based. There's massive differences.
0: Yeah. You know, the comment is that Europe must embrace risk more. And I think Europe does. It's just in smaller pockets of it that are centered around these hubs of activity. Mm-hmm. And that you don't see the bigger check writers at scale. You're mm-hmm. seeing a lot of the smaller ones that are funding smaller projects.
1: Do you do you feel it's still a bit parochial? You know, you you get funded in the country you're in. Yeah. 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 And well I was talking to a bunch of founders about
0: this yesterday on a, a a TechStars course that I was doing on building your investor pipeline and that someone was asking me about hey with everything going on in the Middle East if I am a company based in Egypt am I afraid that I may not get VC funding um, from mm-hmm. Egyptian VCs and I said well it's the same problem in Ireland and regardless of what's going on geopolitically and mm-hmm. that there's it's a small market, and so you're mm-hmm. not going to have a wide breadth of VC diversity there across all the different stages, and so the the risk mindset is focused into one VC. Are we going to do pre-seed? Or are we going to do seed? Well, let's just do later seed, and you know there may be some, and you won't find much in the way of pre-seed in Egypt. I said I said to the person who asked me the question, I'm not. I don't know anything about the Egyptian VC ecosystem. But I've got to (laughs) expect that based upon the small size of the population compared to UK, Europe, US, that you're not going to have as much of a choice, which means you're not going to have as much of a diversity, which means that you're not going to have the specialists in those sectors for exactly what you're doing. So (laughs) my advice is that when you're building an investor pipeline of 100 investors that you think may be interested in investing in your business, which is what you need to do, you need to look at 100, that if you're in Egypt- And you're building a list of 100 investors, that list will quickly take you outside of Egypt. If you're in Ireland building a list of 100 investors, that list will quickly take you outside of Ireland because there's Mm. there's not 100 investors here. So I think that there is a parochial mindset that happens when another investor from outside of your region, outside of your country, is considering investing in you that says, who was a local investor that supported you? And they want to see that local investor support. and sometimes that's meaningful, sometimes it's not as meaningful. The world has become more global in the you know in the seven eight years that I've been doing this. so yeah but yes, in a roundabout way, Paul, I think there is some parochialness in in VC investing in Europe absolutely. still on the European tip, obviously, had a chat last week with my Santa Maria. And we packaged that up into an episode, and that came from a chat that she and I had had a week before that or two weeks before that, and we caught up. And there was something that I was bouncing off of her. There was an article that was in Coindesk just last week on this fiery public hearing on digital euro sees experts diverge on key issues. The thought that I was having that I bounced off of my was this. The obvious pushback on central bank digital currencies, that's what a digital euro would be. That's what we see as a digital yuan in China. And people are talking about the digital dollar in the US and the Bitcoin Mm. in the UK, right? And those are central bank digital currencies. When they are living on a blockchain, anything that is on a blockchain is a public register. You can go look and see what's in somebody's wallet. Now, you may not know whose wallet belongs to who because it's all anonymized with these long character codes. But if you had my wallet address, you could go into, you could Google that. You could Google my wallet address and see what I have in my Ethereum wallet. Okay, so the starting point with everything on blockchain is that it's entirely public, and there are those that are working on things called zero knowledge proofs, like Alio in the U.S. and where they decided we're building our own blockchain because we think that the zero knowledge proof technology that's out there isn't applicable to the way that we want it to operate. So instead of just building zero knowledge proof technology, which gives you some added privacy, we're going to we're gonna build our own blockchain. Mm-hmm. So that that context of well, if you want a digital euro, then everybody knows each other's business or could potentially know that. Because if it is a digital euro, if it is on a public blockchain mm-hmm. where the digital euro transactions live, then it is all you can go onto Etherscan and find out what's going on, or whatever blockchain they use, whatever, whatever scan tool can be used for that. So my thought that I that I shared with my was that okay, what came first though in all of this? GDPR came first. Privacy regulation came first in Europe, where nobody can know each other's business. Mm-hmm. And so could you actually have a digital euro on a public blockchain where without these privacy controls?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Because GDPR came first. And that was my question to my, and I don't know if we ever got an answer for that, because what ended up happening as well was that there was news on this kind of digital passport, this digital ID that, you're, that the EU are bringing to market as well, and that you technically have this ability to link somebody's ID to a transaction. That is just a hot pot of anti-privacy and we need to do something about that. So, I was I kind of came out of that conversation a little bit more optimistic about a central bank digital currency in Europe because my original and every not everybody, but you know, those looking at the space have said that totally eliminates privacy. But in a land of GDPR, I don't think you could have a digital euro construct where it is anything but private. It sounds like you're building a case for it to be on a private blockchain. No, no, no. It, it's that there's, I haven't connected all the dots yet. But when I spoke with Alex Pruden, the CEO of Alio last year, he said, listen, you know, where you're starting with on blockchain, if, you know, we, back in 2015, 2016, when I first got into this space, there was so much excitement at the financial market CEO level about blockchain and about the ability to tokenize assets, tokenize securities And move the entire financial markets onto a blockchain. And that just, that that quickly ran out of steam because people realized how hard that was going to be. And Alex's point was, yeah, great, you want to do that. But the way that blockchains work today is that you don't, unless you implement a private blockchain for this stuff, which they may still do, Mm -hmm. if it's all on a public blockchain, which is the most efficient way to run a blockchain, then it's all out in the open. Mm -hmm. It is all out in the public, okay? And that just doesn't fit with, the general populace's mindset towards privacy. Mm -hmm. So Alex Pruden said, listen, this is why we're building their own layer one blockchain because there is a thing called zero knowledge proofs and I won't get into what those are and how they work, but that will, like I said a few minutes ago, will add an element of privacy to blockchains. And if we end up in a situation where CBDCs are launched on private blockchains, then the government has all your information anyway, which is not what we wanted. And that is perhaps why the Chinese yuan was the first central bank digital currency to come to market because in China,
1: the government knows your business anyway, right? Yeah, blockchain Ireland this year, this year I was having a chat with someone and it was all about, you know, CBDC and would you use it, would you not? And sometimes I, I kind of have this thing about people in this crypto space, asking people in the crypto space, would you do things with, Crypto, and it's kind of like you're asking the wrong people. To me, if it if it's easy to use and it's straightforward to use and everything else, I, I kind of think the population in general don't care. Kind of don't care. Yeah, if they don't care. If I can generally, I generally to they the don't. Shop, but you know, tap of my phone. I don't really care about. I don't care if the government knows. Yeah,
0: and and th- and that's just it. The majority do not. I think though, as this becomes more and more of the norm. That the ability for surveillance at a macro level by the government of what everybody's doing, that will
1: eventually become a concern. Totally, I, I think the the bit that stood out to me in that uh, was, so if you have this central bank centralized currency, what happens to the commercial banks?
0: Well, that's the point. So I was working on a project with a company called Billin a couple of years ago on this. And where there's two models of central bank digital currency. One, the central bank itself is the issuer, Mm. and then they take on a responsibility at the retail level. Mm. So imagine the Fed handling disputes between you and the shopkeeper, where this actually happened to me a couple of weeks ago, or back in May, and it took this long to sort out, where I bought a round of drinks that was 14 euro and 70 cents, and what ended up on my card was 147 euro and 30 cent. Mm. Okay. So someone miskeyed it. I won't ask where you bought the drinks either, please. (laughs) I won't ask
1: where you bought the drinks.
0: It was at the Glenview hotel Mm. at my daughter's confirmation. Okay. So it was all, it was all on the up and up, but listen, so it, it took, it took six months for me to get that back. And they had to write a check for me to get that money back. (laughs) Because no one could figure out what happened. Yeah, yeah. I, I filed a claim with with my bank. They reversed the charge. Yeah. 45 days later, they reversed the reversal. All this other stuff. Does the central bank really want to deal with that kind of stuff? Mm-hmm. Where there is a transaction that only, they are the only, not, not even party to the transaction, mm-hmm. but they're the issuer of that currency. They are owning and operating the blockchain on which this transaction happened. Yeah. Do they want to own? No, they do not. Yeah. So Billin proposed Let's go back to what we did in the 1800s, which is that commercial banks issue notes, but they issue them in a fungible way, so that J.P. Morgan's issuance, Citi's issuance, Sockgen's issuance, whomever's, are all fungible. And people know that, like, yes, when you have a euro note, that you look at the back and you can see that that euro note was printed in Greece. Mm-hmm. Doesn't matter; I could still go into a shop in Ireland and you know buy something with that, mm. with that note. And it's the same way as that you'll know that. The euro or the dollar in your digital wallet was issued by J.P. Morgan, but it's acceptable everywhere because it is it is fungible across the different issuers. And that let those commercial banks then deal with the disputes. Mm-hmm. Okay, and they license the technology. I Yeah, you know, who cares about the contractual arrangement? But you know, uh, operationally, they license the technology in order to issue digital currency. Mm-hmm. And that just let them do it because they are the ones who are creating money right now through the loan process. So let them keep doing that. And I think that's the way that this will go. But, you know, I, I think we're going to see the central banks as a pilot project. They will be the ones who are issuing the
1: the CBD. Who who do you think is going to get there first?
0: Nigeria is already there, right? There's already a lot happening there with the e-Naira. Um, China's there but it it's you know you are inserting a new form of payment into a into an economy <laughs> and these things take a while right how long like i still go over to the us and and i try to tap something and they're like oh no that doesn't work here <laughs> you know so it it's going to take a long time and i think it's going to be you know it'll be a bit watered down by the time it gets it gets to the point of of mass adoption, and that, it, like you said a few minutes ago, the majority of the populace do not care mm. if I go buy an apple in a shop. I don't care who who knows that I bought an apple in a shop. Yep.
1: Um,
0: but there will be other bigger transactions that people don't want anybody to know about,
1: mm.
0: you know. And those aren't things that those aren't things that are illegal. Those are things that perhaps where you know I've got a friend today who has a small business. And bought a nice piece of artwork for the wall in his home office. And he bought that on the business because it was art for the Mm. business. And obviously, he bought that pre tax. Okay. So, do you want things like that to be on a governmental record? Probably not. Mm. You know? So,
1: yeah. Still still a bit to work through. There is.
0: There is, but there was something that happened that was just announced this morning that I missed that you picked up on, Yes, which was SockGen and their stablecoin. Tell me about what happened there.
1: First big bank to list a stablecoin. So there's some kind of key differences in this because banks have done stablecoins previously, but they're calling it coinvertible and it's trading on a Luxembourg exchange called Bitstamp. And it was going to be offered just to institutional clients to bridge that gap between traditional capital markets and digital markets. So similar enough to what JP Morgan and others have done, um, but it was on Ethereum rather than on a private blockchain. But then this morning, it was announced that it was going to be traded on, on Bitstamp on the exchange. So key difference there. And I think what I was wondering with this, or what caught my attention with this, apart from the headline, was with the likes of kind of Tether and Circle, both facing questions about reserves, actually backing tokens, does the likes of a gen, you know, well-regulated financial institution, offering what they say is going to be a fully backed token on an exchange nudge things forward a hell of a lot. Their CEO of SockGen Forge, the crypto side of SockGen, was also quoted as saying it's been built to align with Mika rules. So kind of forward-looking in the not-too-distant future. Like a lot of noise around this, UK regulators giving the green light to tokenize funds as long as they maintain what they're calling mainstream assets. Other regulators making strides, particularly in Asia, um, regulating stable coins and tokenization. It just feels like as we kind of said at the top, or maybe before we started, that wave of institutional interest and adoption in the whole space is getting stronger and stronger. And will that scrutiny and regulatory bustness drive people towards a more mainstream adoption of crypto, blockchain, tokenization, the whole that whole world?
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I like like I said, I, I reviewed easily, I don't know, 150, 200 deals in the last week coming in and, and I saw so much where I'm like, all right, stop using the word web three, stop using the word <laughs> blockchain, stop using the word crypto. Just put it into, just eliminate it from your deck because you don't need it. This is a consumer app. And so much of this that we're talking about right now is that, okay, folks is just a new form of of spending money. Stable coins though, you're, you're right. Stable coins to me are, are a bit of a bridge to adoption and to giving consumers something that is easy for them to understand. Yeah. It's a digital token that is backed by dollars or euro or any other currency. And that when you have the things like the EMI licensing and registration process in Europe, the electronic money institution, we have that here. And that's already kind of the bridge for crypto exchanges to do this is that crypto exchanges themselves in Europe, if they're going to accept fiat currency to be able to enable customers to convert that into into crypto, that they need to be an electronic money institution because they need to be able to hold that on reserve on a one-for-one basis in mm. a safeguarding account that is only for client funds. And it needs to be totally segregated. And any crypto exchange in Europe needs to operate that way. Okay, And what is, in effect, a stablecoin issuer, they are an e-money institution because they are accepting fiat and they are then issuing, in return, they're issuing a digital representation of that. Yep. Now, because in the U.S. with Circle and I think Tether is offshore, there is no EMI licensing regime. There are different ones like money transmitter license and that type of thing, which are not anywhere near as robust as EMI in Europe, that they've been able to be these issuers with, okay, only 90% backed because 10% of that is backed by, by treasuries, by other you know corporate notes, corporate paper, whatever. And what's happening with Mika is that if you are issuing a stablecoin, you need a Mika license, and you need 100% backing. Mm. Um, so that's going to take away the the profit opportunity, because that's where how Circle and Tether make money is that they it's it's only you know 90, yeah. 80, 60% backed. Who knows in Tether's case, but it feels like where things have gone is more towards 80, 85, 90% backed, and the rest they invest. Mm. And they make a a profit off of that, and that's how they make their money. And so it's kind of almost like quasi-banking. But I I see stablecoins, at least in Europe, SockGen with this one that they've launched are following Mika, then they're doing it with 100% backing. Mm. And so for them, it's just, okay, we're going to take deposits, and instead of loaning out 90% of that deposit – we're going to make it available as a stable
1: coin. Yeah. Yeah. It it was, it was mentioned in the article as one-to-one. Yeah.
0: So they, they are holding that on reserve. So they are taking deposits and contrary to the way banking works, they're not loaning out a penny of that in ordinary banking for every hundred euro that you deposit, your bank is turning around and lending out 90% Mm -hmm. of that and creating more money and making money off of that. So I think this, while I'm, impressed that Sockgen are doing this, I don't think it's scalable because how are you going to make money?
1: It's like a light version almost of a, well, not a CBTC, but, you know, it's a one-to-one backed digital it is. asset. It's a nice experiment. And when you think about adoption and mass adoption going forward, I think it's interesting. You know, even at the start of of, of this, what we were talking about in terms of where Bitcoin is going like the whole CZ and Binance saga over the past while hasn't put a dent in anything, uh, in terms of, of where the price of, of crypto has gone very different to what happened, you know, this time last year, I think it was with FTX and everything else. So it's, it's really, really interesting. Obviously a big impact for, for Binance since then, I think their share of the spot crypto market's gone from 50% or above 50% um, to 32% this month. Yeah. on uh, the same in the derivatives market, but it's. I just, it just feels a lot more like robust. It feels a lot less jittery than it was previously.
0: It does. It does. And I, you know, yes, institutions are coming back. The momentum that started in 2015, 2016 with real world assets yeah, uh, and tokenizing real world assets. And that is such a huge topic right now. Yes. And we're seeing so many banks that are running pilots in that space. And it's like, they're finally getting up the curve with this technology and that's, that's how long it takes banks to get up to up to speed with new technologies. Right. That's why they're banks, you know, and th- that they do things slowly because they have to. If you are actually running a business model where for every $100 that you take in, you're loaning out $90, you better be running a pretty safe operation mm. in order to make that all work yeah. and to keep track of all that. So don't introduce new technology. And if you have a side unit that's doing some investment and messing around with some pro- 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 some proprietary trading, okay, go ahead do that but that's going to be smaller scale and you don't want to mess with this model the traditional banking Mm. model so i i think you know longer term i i don't know what's going to happen with the traditional banking model but we're you know 20 30 50 years off from that yeah interesting to see where it all goes anyway absolutely absolutely is there one more thing there was actually a question i wanted to ask you okay so there is a substack Sorry, there's a newsletter called The Generalist. Mario Gabrielli. You ever read this? Nope. I was flipping through it yesterday. And the question that was posed and in the context of kind of like what we've been talking about, scaling new products, scaling new businesses and growing them and producing venture style returns and enabling things to be carried forward so that private equity can invest in them. And this whole cycle that happens from early, early, early drip of the stage of the entrepreneur's mental psyche off of the glacier that is their brain when they're working in a corporate environment or perhaps still in university, and they start to get into the flow of the entrepreneurial spirit. Mm. What does it take to succeed? And Mark Andreessen back in 2007 said that it's a great market. Great markets rule all. And that you can have a mediocre founder in a great market that actually grows an incredible business Mm. rather than having an incredibly brilliant founder in a mediocre market that Mark Andreessen would always vote for the great market with a mediocre founder Mm. over a great founder in a mediocre market. You've grown your business Mm. with Laura and you've fought through mediocre markets
1: what do you think rules out here a great founder mindset or a great market i think for me i, I i'd back a founder or then a market longer term i think like short term short term if you're in a good market you're in a good market like if, if i think about housing in ireland if you're an estate agent over the past few years you don't really have to do a whole lot you post your ad on daft or my home or whatever you sell us it goes, whatever, 10, 20, 30% above market. So, really easy in, in a market like that to make money. And it's similar in recruitment. But I think longer term, you need good founders to really thrive in down markets and in good markets. Like, I've always thought athletes and, and football players and stuff like that. Like, if you think of Cristiano Ronaldo, David Beckham, everyone would say, you know, Ronaldo is, is not, or say Ronaldo and, and Messi might be a better example. Ronaldo is not naturally as talented as Messi, but he works really, really hard. So he's your really good founder. For example, Messi's more naturally talented, probably doesn't have to work as hard, both end up kind of up there and up up there. So it's not going to be, people don't see where I'm pointing, I'm pointing really high, uh, you know, in terms of the level that they get to. So I think that's a combination of, of kind of what we're talking about. If you have a really good founder who's naturally good and gifted and works really hard. They'll do better in a down market, but they'll also do better in an up market. If you have a mediocre founder, they'll do well. If you're investing in them and you get out early, you'll make money off them for sure. But when things start to turn, the cracks will start to appear. Yeah. Yeah. I know.
0: And I'm, I'm just always on the quest for the fantastic founders. I, I, I like
1: to see it's got to be, do you know what? Actually, it's not just founder, it's got to be team. Yeah. It's got to be team. There's not too many solo founders out there and I think that team piece is just so important and it gets really hard because the pressure is insane and people want to go in different directions and, you know, accountability and communication and all of those sort of soft skills come into really sharp focus. I think as you start to go through the tough times, so someone who can work within that team, but is almost that natural leader of that team as well. Yeah, that's, Uh, that's
0: where I'm going. Like Does that single? Because when I came into the space back in twenty sixteen, my first, you know, big eye opening experience was that not all startup founders are fantastically wonderful, charismatic leaders. No, not at all. Very few of them are. Very few people are in the world. And so, one can one great founder build a fantastic team, and have the emotional intelligence to be able to keep people moving. Through thick yep. and thin, through the ups and downs, the great markets, the mediocre markets. And that, yeah. yes, it takes a
1: team. But is it still that one amazing founder? Yeah. like uh, uh, One of the other things that, that I would see as a commonality amongst great founders is the ability to know when they need to bring in help and, and to be able to to let go a little bit, to be able to identify your own blind spots and be honest with yourself about, you know, I'm good at this. I'm not as good as that. And I can get the business to a certain level, but I can't go beyond it. I need to bring in external help. Whether that's a new CEO and you step into a chair position or a head of a different function or you, you know, stay in your lane that you're really, really good at. But that's so difficult. Like that's so, so difficult for founders. I'd see it on the recruitment side in particular. I know a couple of, of hires that we've made externally for clients in that, I don't know, You know, early growth stage, they haven't worked out and the commonality has been not that they've hired people who couldn't work in a startup, but because the founder couldn't let go of the thing that they've been doing for three or four years before. Uh,
0: That's a big thing as well. I know. And, and I mean, team, yes, critically important, earliest stages. You can't do this yourself. It's very, very hard to do this yourself. One person can bring in a dev team to build their vision for them. Mm-hmm. But you just need that help. You need that technical co-founder. And Alan Meany said this to me years ago. You need that technical co-founder. So on the day that you're going live, that at three in the morning, before that go live day, everything falls over. You need someone who's incentivized that really wants to get that back up and running at three in the morning mm-hmm. on a Sunday night, okay? So team, absolutely. And I invest in fantastic teams. That's that's my That's my mandate. That's what I do. And fantastic founding teams. But I, I do think when you're looking at this in comparison to, is it great market, great founder? And by saying great founder, do you mean great founding team? Or single charismatic leader that can bring things through every round to a public offering, to a direct listing, whatever it is? Those are very few and far between. Yeah. And so for the nature of the amount of amazing companies that have scaled and that have made it out into the public markets and generating billions and billions of wealth, that I think that is a lot less dependent on incredible single great founder because there just aren't that many people out there. Mm. If you look at all the success stories of all the best companies that have made it from the very beginnings of the entrepreneurial journey all the way to the public markets, I don't think you're going to see... A huge, you know, it's very imbalanced. Thousands of companies, probably hundreds of incredible founders. Mm. So that then leads me back to, is it the market?
1: I I, I still don't think so. I I think the assumption there is that you have one founder who is at the helm of that company all the way through its, its, its trajectory to becoming a massive, you know, company. Whereas I think it's more important that you have a founder who can step back and fill the gaps that they obviously can't do themselves. They don't need to be that charismatic person who can go and close rounds with everyone. Like I think in early stage, yeah. it's more important because there's less of you, someone has to do it and you got to find the person in the room who can be that person who can stand in front of investors, convince them to part with money in a tight market like this in particular, and, and put a bit of a, a bet on you. But you don't need to be the same person when you're going series A, series B, series, you know, it, it, it doesn't have to be that. It's much more about the team then. So how do you identify the team that you need? Like it's like a lot of it's self-awareness and getting out of your own way a little bit and just not, not being so caught up in, I'm the CEO. I have to do all of these things or else I'm a failure because you're not. You're right. You're right. It's even like I'm,
0: I'm thinking of, of one company where the incredibly focused and talented and incredible negotiator that is the CFO. Yeah you know, and that the CEO could not live without that individual, impossible. 100%, 100%. You know, and that is something that when you can get that pairing at the earliest stage, that's wonderful. Mm -hmm. But going through your life cycle, there will be people that come in along the journey. So I, I think we're back to the question of great market, great founder, great market versus great founder. I think the answer is, Somewhere
1: in between. <laughs> I just it, it depends what you're looking for. I really think it depends what you're looking for. If you're looking for longevity, it's got to be about founder and team, and what that's going to look like long term. Because in the town market, yeah, but it, in the appear.
0: But it's not one single founder.
1: Or founder slash team, whatever you want to call it's a, it. Or, yeah, or but leader it,
0: of team, or. But it's not one single individual that is the initial first founding CEO. Yeah, that is responsible for a company's success. It is the team at the earliest stages. It is how are you responding to the market in up and down times? Yeah. And what are the people that you can bring in along the way to the journey, you know, for to 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 achieve the vision with you. And the markets will go up, the markets will go down, the markets will go up and the markets will go down. So I think the question that I asked originally is flawed. Right. Because I think posing is it the market Versus, so going back to the generalist and Mario mm. Gabrielli, and and the whole point of having this chat was me thinking, Mark Andreessen, are you right by saying it's the market? So forget about the person who's driving the bus, or and the team of people that are helping them to navigate. And he's saying it's the market. He's like in any in any great market, a mediocre founder can make it. I think what we're saying here is that regardless of what the market does. There is no path to success anyway
1: without a great team. I disagree slightly with that as well, because I started in, in recruitment in 2007, September 2007. So I literally had 12 months of financial services recruitment in Dublin before Lehman Brothers crashed in 2008, September 2008. And back then Merrill Lynch were my big client and they were paying what would be considered a very good fee and paying very good salaries, even in today's market for graduates. All I had to do was find people who had a finance degree and who could put a sentence together, I'd send them out to Sandy first, they do an interview, they get an offer the next day. I could make money in that market, with zero training, yeah. like literally zero training. So I didn't need to be a great recruiter. I don't claim to be a great recruiter now, pretty good, I think after 20 years. But like, my point is I, I didn't have to be great at anything at all. I could just place people because the market was like that. The same with a state agent selling houses the last three or four years in Ireland, like it's easy. You post an ad and it's done. So yeah, like the market's important. I think you'll make money in a good market off a mediocre team and a mediocre founder because a rising market will lift all ships. But for anything kind of longer term, or if you're going through any turbulence, I I think it's much more important to focus on the founder, the founding team, and especially like in early stage companies, Everyone loves a good pivot. You know, so it, you're in a great market, all of a sudden, you know, the market doesn't necessarily want what you thinks it wants, you got a pivot. I want somebody who's gonna be able to lead that rather than you know what I mean? Yeah,
0: yeah. And I think I think I just nailed what it is that Mark Andreessen was saying is that he's thinking like a VC. And when mm-hmm. he said this back in two thousand seven, two thousand eight, he wasn't a VC yet. But it's that VCs think in cycles in three to five year cycles of if you can time it right and you get your fund launched, at the point in time you start deploying that capital where valuations are on the uptick because it's a great market, then you're gonna be able to return capital to investors within three to five years and you've benefited significantly from the great market even though you've got a bunch of mediocre founders. But if you're Um, looking at this for long-term, 10, 15, 20 year investing, you need a team of fantastic founders.
1: It, it, you know, Warren Buffett versus VCs, it's a different, a different mentality, a different way of looking at it, but surely that's why there was so much money poured into AI because it's, it's a good market. You know, you invest, I don't know, 10 million into 10 different AI firms. There's a reasonable chance that a couple of them are going to do okay. And you're going to make your money back. You're right. Well, listen,
0: my, my challenge that I had of myself that I didn't share with you was to see how cerebral that Paul Smith could get on this topic without sharing it with you before we went on air. And I think that with everything that you do, Paul, that you are quite cerebral. So anything that I put in front of you, you could sound quite cerebral.
1: So thank you.
0: I I can come up with an answer anyway. You can, you can, you can. So listen, thank you. This has been a wonderful chat. I'm glad that we got to do this today. Yeah, And I know I'll be seeing you in the next couple of weeks. Looking forward to us. Thanks, peace. Thank you. That does it for this week, folks. You can learn more about the stories we covered in the show notes on our website, moneyneversleeps.ie. Thanks to Paul Smith for all the insights he shared in co-hosting this episode with me. We'll do a deeper dive into the output of this conversation in our Money Never Sleeps newsletter on Substack. So check that out on moneyneversleeps.substack.com and subscribe. If you like what you heard, please leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify as it helps others to find the show. Also, thanks to Conan Brophy from Create Sound for mixing and editing this episode. Conan is an excellent media man to get in touch with when you're thinking about launching your own podcast. As for me, I'm an early-stage startup investor focused on where fintech meets crypto and crypto meets Web3, And I lead the Techstars Web3 Accelerator. There are plenty of links in the show notes on moneyneversleeps.ie on how to get in touch, so don't hesitate to reach out. Finally, till next time, thanks for listening. See ya! Money
1: never sleeps, pal.